Father, uh, may you be blessed. May you be honored at the reading of your word today. Uh, may it impact our hearts, God, as you um, have something very important to us to say about uh, how we react to things in life, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to say this um, because a few weeks ago when we kind of did things differently and I sat in the chair and we kind of, you know, put the seats differently, uh, I said when I was teaching that week that if anybody had a question, right, we're going to do kind of different, just raise your hand, you know, and I would try to answer the question. Um, I don't have all the answers, but I would rather try to answer something here than for somebody to go out the door, be scratching their head and be like, I have no idea what he was talking about. So what we're going to do, and this is risky, okay, but that's okay. If you have a question... While this is going on, just throw your hand up. Don't be shy, all right? No stupid questions, and I'll do my best to answer that. But Jesus is talking about something today that um, is so applicable to the culture that we're living today, and that's retaliation. Um, The culture that we live in is hyper-focused on rights. Uh, The Constitution promises us certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Uh, We have a Bill of Rights. Uh, right now in the headlines, we have gun rights, we have abortion rights, we have voting rights, we have all of that stuff right now in our culture. Uh, people go on talk shows, they go on podcasts to talk about personal rights, especially if they feel like their personal rights have been violated. When somebody hurts us, we say, you need to make it right. So people are very concerned about that. But an inordinate concern with our personal rights comes from an inordinate selfishness. And what that can lead to is lawlessness. Uh, James 4, he says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? And when our passions are at war within us, justice gets trampled in the name of retaliation and revenge. And that's what we're talking about today. Well, if there's one occupation in the world that is not in danger of running out of things to do, it's the legal profession. Uh, We live in one of the most litigious societies on the planet. People will sue you for just about any reason. In fact, I found this story in 2007. Roy Pearson, who was a D.C. judge, filed a suit against a small dry cleaner over a pair of pants. He said that he took his pants in to be altered, and they lost them, and he tried to replace them with, you know, a substitute pair. His $800 pair of pants that he wanted to wear when he was sitting on the bench, he claimed that they tried to substitute him for a cheaper pair. Now, the shop owners felt that they hadn't done any wrong, of course, but they decided that they would settle with him out of court for $12,000. That alone lets you know that there was some, something going on on the shop owner's part. But they tried to settle with him. He said no. He didn't take that. And so what he did is he filed a suit that was going to go against what they claimed was satisfaction guaranteed and same-day service. He said that that shop represented an unconditional guarantee that entitled him to a larger amount of money than what was offered. The judge wanted $1,500 per defendant for each of the 12,000 days that that sign had been in the window. He also wanted to be compensated for emotional damages, the cost of the rental car used to drive to another dry cleaner, legal fees despite the fact that he represented himself. The lawsuit, $67 million over an $800 pair of pants. Now, the presiding judge ruled in favor of the dry cleaners, awarded them court costs and attorney's fees. Pearson was not reappointed to his seat as a judge in D.C. after that. So his desire for retaliation, for revenge, left him without a job and uh, without his pants, 
<laughs> he tried to sue the pants off of this dry cleaners, and he lost his pants, and he lost the case in the process. But Jesus has something to say about how we respond when we feel like our rights have been violated. So we are actually going to finish out chapter 5 today, believe it or not. Um, we're going to start in verse 38, go through 48, 10 whole verses this morning. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who's evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you, take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. We'll stop right there. This portion of scripture is titled, probably in your Bible, it is at the top of mind, retaliation. And it's been misinterpreted over the years to mean lots of different things. One of them is that Christians should just be doormats, right? That people should just be able to walk all over us and we shouldn't do anything about it. Um, Others have used this verse right here to promote passivism, uh, that we shouldn't get involved in any kind of conflict, regardless of what it is. Uh, People who are conscientious objectors in the military um, cite this first. Uh, Some claim that if we can just go light on justice and heavy on the love, that our society will be a much better place. Kind of a modern day uh, defund the police thinking that we have going on today. But we know that that's not going to be the case because man is inherently sinful. And without justice, a culture falls into lawlessness. Uh, When we're light on justice, fallen man defaults to revenge and retaliation when they've been wronged. Uh, You don't have to look any farther than children. Uh, You get one little child who takes the toy of another one, and then the other kid smacks him, right? And then the other kid bites him, and then he pulls hair, and the whole thing just escalates. The whole thing just gets worse in retaliation. As adults, it's not much different. We say things like, we're going to get even with that other person, but that's not what we mean. What we really mean is we're going to get one up on them. We're going to hurt them more than they hurt us when we say that we're going to get them back. It's vindictive in nature. And Jesus is quoting a verse here that we find three times in the Old Testament. It's found in Exodus, it's found in Leviticus, and then also again in Deuteronomy. And God is setting up guidelines for what should happen when we have been violated, when our rights or our person has been violated. And I'll read one of them to you out of Leviticus. This is Leviticus twenty nineteen. If anyone injures his neighbor... As he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. Now, this is probably the oldest law ever recorded, right? Somebody does something to you, you can do it back to them. Now, most people who use this phrase aren't talking about making things right. They're talking about revenge, eye for an eye. We still use this phrase in our culture today. But this law was given for two very specific reasons. The first one was to act as a deterrent to people in case they were thinking about intentionally hurting another person. So this was supposed to be a deterrent. Uh, This is part of the problem really in uh, our society today, in our legal system. The deterrents that we have aren't strong enough. Uh, Obviously, there are places in the Middle East that we read about where somebody steals something and then they lose their hand, right? And that sounds extreme to us except that they don't have a problem with robbery over there. They don't have a problem with people stealing things because the deterrent is serious. We don't have that in our day today. day. Uh, they used to say that crime doesn't pay, but it actually does pay. It pays pretty good in our society today. Only 20, 29% of robberies end up in convictions, only a third. Arson, only 22%. Property crime, 
less than 15%, and car theft, only 12%. Only 12% of car thefts end in convictions. So uh, there's not a sufficient deterrent to keep most criminals from committing the crime, and so they become repeat offenders because it actually does pay. And the second reason isn't what you'd think. It was actually given by God to prevent excessive use, right? Excessive retaliation, excessive punishment based on a personal desire for vengeance. Punishment was to match, not exceed, the crime that was committed. It's important to note here that in each of these uh, cases where it's mentioned in the Old Testament, it is mentioned in the context of civil justice, civil lawsuits, so in a courtroom. Um, Sometimes the punishment would be carried out by the person who was offended, but the trial, the case, the sentencing was always carried out by a group of judges or a group of citizens. So this made it not only just, but also merciful. Merciful because as a sinful people, we have a tendency towards overreaction, especially when we're angry. This is why we have the phrase, that escalated quickly, right? Because it goes from one thing to the next to the next until it's just about over. Um, It's always, uh, you know, in our society, when we get hurt, we want a pound of flesh for an ounce of offense. Um, This is exactly the reason why God says vengeance is mine, right? That's exactly why he says vengeance is mine is mine. Retaliation is his. So um, what he's talking about in this context, and I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to get to this, but that's good. I'll address it right now, is that outside of a civil case, right, he's talking about relationships. He's talking about personal relationships, not retaliating against somebody in personal relationships. So if somebody outside the courtroom, right, if it's in a civil setting, like, yes, you're trying to make things right. But if somebody just comes up to you and attacks you physically, like in that case, if they're just trying to attack your honor, you're just supposed to let it go. Follow the example of Jesus, right? He didn't defend himself when he was being attacked. So um, we're to let God handle it because he's going to carry out justice in a righteous way. He's not going to overreact. Uh, there are no verses in the Old Testament that we are to take justice into our own hands and carry it out personally. So no vigilantes because we tend to overreact. In fact, Solomon writes in Proverbs twenty four twenty nine. he says, Do not say, I will do to him as he has done to me. I will pay the man back for what he's done. And Jesus addresses this topic because that's exactly what the Pharisees of their day were teaching. Uh, they had kind of departed from the civil system and let people be the judge, jury, and executioner of their own justice. Instead of taking it before the authorities, they were using these uh, as kind of a license to carry out their own retaliation. And instead of a limit on punishment, it had become license to get back at somebody. And once again, we have an example of self-righteousness, right? The Pharisees were very self-righteous. And whenever we feel self-righteous, then what we're doing is we're trampling God's law in that case. Now, I don't think anybody inherently has a problem with the first part of this verse, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, you know, having the punishment match the crime. But the second kind of this, the second half of this, does kind of make our heads, you know, kind of swim. We scratch our heads a little bit when it says, do not resist an evil person and simply turn the other cheek. Um, I thought that we were supposed to resist evil, right, in all of its forms and everything that Satan, you know, inspires. Romans 12 tells us to hate evil. 1 Thessalonians 5.2 tells us to reject evil of every kind. And Paul told the Corinthians, remove the wicked person from among you. So Jesus isn't saying that we should just let evil run wild, that we should just let it run its course. That's not what he's saying. Um, That's not the example that we see throughout the scriptures. Uh, To not restrain evil is neither just nor kind. 
Uh, We have to protect the innocent and obey the laws of the land as it pertains to wrongdoing. Uh, Part of Jesus' mission statement was to rescue those and to free those who have been taken captive by evil. Um, But when Jesus saw people profaning the temple, remember when he walked past the temple and there was all the buying and selling, he went and fashioned a whip and drove all those people out. He was getting rid of the evil that was happening in front of the temple. So what Jesus is talking about in this context is forbidding retaliation in personal relationships. So if you have somebody in your life personally that is doing you harm, he says, we just have to let it go. That's a really difficult, this whole teaching I think is one of the most difficult in the Bible. Not retaliating, not taking vengeance, not taking up an offense towards somebody else who's done us wrong. Eye for an eye is a civil suit restraining an evil person. That's a personal relationship. So this is the same truth echoed by Paul in Romans 12. It says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. So what Jesus tells us, in not resisting an evil person is to not set yourself against that other person. Don't set yourself in opposition to that person because if you take it up an offense and you set yourself up against that person, you're just going to set off a relational war, if that makes sense. Um, It's only going to result in bitterness. In fact, we're supposed to do good to that person. The people that hurt us, we're supposed to do good to. uh, And if we look at You know, Paul, as an example, he had so many times when he was beaten, when he was stoned, when he was, you know, thrown in jail, and he never retaliated against any of it. He certainly used those opportunities to be a witness. This is the second half of the verse that I just read. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he's thirsty, give him back something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Uh, that part where it says heap burning coals on his head, that's always been kind of a, you know, an interesting verse for me. What does that mean that you're going to dump hot coals on his head? Uh, basically, by not retaliating, right, by doing good to the other person, they're going to have egg on their face, right? We're hoping that that's a conviction for them. That when we treat them good after they've offended us, that they're going to be convicted by that. That that's going to kind of, you know, singe their conscience, you know, that it's going to pierce them in some way. Uh, We don't know that, but that's the hope when we don't retaliate, we actually do good to them. Uh, Like I said, this is one of the most difficult concepts in the Bible because it's not in our nature. Uh, Jesus says, these are the traits of a kingdom citizen. This is what it's supposed to look like. And he picks out four basic human rights to illustrate this principle of non-retaliation. These are very timely because these are things that we're seeing in our society right now. Uh, The first one is dignity. Human beings have the right to be treated with dignity and respect. Uh, Everybody is created in God's image, so everybody deserves respect. But if you're a follower of Jesus, we've been warned ahead of time that you're going to be disrespected and persecuted for your faith. Just expect that. That's coming your way, and we're not to retaliate. Uh, It's how we react to that treatment that Jesus is talking about, turning the other cheek. Um, Being slapped in the face was a huge insult, Um, but it wasn't just bodily harm. It was really an attack on your honor. Uh, Paul was, you know, being questioned by the Pharisees, and he said something, didn't know it was the high priest, and they told him to smack him. So somebody standing right next to him smacked him in the face, and he said, I'm sorry, I did not realize that I was talking to the leader, uh, because we're not supposed to profane the leaders of our land. So that was an instance where, you know, he had to turn the other cheek. I remember when I was little watching the cartoons, right, and somebody would 
would take off their glove, you know, and they would smack the other person across the cheek. And then the other person would take off his glove, you know, and like slip a brick in it or something like that, you know, and smack them back, that kind of retaliation. But we're called to follow the example of our Savior. Uh, Jesus was quick to resist evil done to other people, but he resisted the urge to take vengeance or retaliate on evil being done to him. Uh, Isaiah prophesied that like a sheep before its shearers is quiet, he opened up not his mouth. When he was standing before Pilate, when he was being accused by the leaders, he said nothing. In 1 Peter 2.20, Peter asked the question, he says, but how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. And when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges rightly. When Jesus did speak, he actually prayed for those that were killing him. He actually prayed for his enemies when he was hanging on the cross. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. He actually prayed for those that were attacking his dignity. The next human right is one of security. If anyone sues you for your tunic, let them have your cloak as well. Now, this phrase loses all meaning in American society today because we go drop off bags of clothes at Goodwill, right? And we still have full closets. So we don't really know what this means. I mean, I I have like 10 jackets. I don't even know why. Too much stuff, right? We have lots of stuff. Uh, But back then, a person might have two tunics, They might have two. This was kind of like a shirt or a robe that they would wear to work in. So losing one was significant, but losing your cloak was a big deal. In fact, in Exodus 22, it says that if you take somebody's cloak, if you take their robe as collateral for something, you had to give it back to them at night because it served as a blanket for them when they they slept at night. So Jesus is saying, not only is it going to be inconvenient for you to lose your other article of clothing, but you're actually supposed to give them something seriously of value. Because the connotation here, if somebody's suing you, then you've probably done something wrong, right? And what we're supposed to do is go above and beyond to say that we are sorry for what we've done. And so we go further than what normally would be um, you know, expected by the law go further to show our regret for any wrongdoing that we might have done. But even if somebody's taking advantage of you, he's saying, listen, do more, do good to that other person. Show them the love of God who's inside of you that we're not, you know, that we don't have to retaliate um, against them for the wrong that they've done to us. Unfortunately, this problem is also seen in the church. Uh, There should never be two Christians standing in front of a secular judge to decide a legal issue. It's just not biblical. Uh, Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians 6. Um, I mentioned that the church in Corinth was a bit of a mess. It was a disaster. But for our benefit, God used it so that we have some very valuable insight on how to live the Christian life. Here's what Paul had to say. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there's no one among you wise enough to settle dispute between brothers? But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. 
Now, a previous church that I attended, uh, we were part of a denomination. We were loosely affiliated with a denomination. And when I say loosely, I mean that we sent them checks every month and they cashed them. Like, that was about it. There was no relationship to this church, to this, uh, to this denomination. And so, because of that, over time, we decided, you know what, this really, this really isn't a partnership. They're not doing anything to support us, so we need to step away. We need to make a break from this denomination. But when we made that decision known to the denomination, they sued us. They sued us. They took us to court because they wanted to continue to receive money from us as a church. Uh, I mean, in the, in the 10 years that we went to church there and I served as an elder, I never saw anybody from the denomination. They never visited us. They never supported us in any way. And when we decided to walk away from that because we didn't share the same mission, the same goal, they decided to sue us. Um, and we had long discussions about how to handle this, what to do in this situation. Uh, we tried to find a resolution that was going to be God-honoring uh, and that kept us out of the courtroom, uh, but they just kind of kept digging their heels in with this situation. And as we prayed about it, we kept coming back to this portion of Scripture uh, that we just couldn't get away of. And so, you know, we ended up paying them like six-figure sum over the next couple years, and we were being defrauded. We were the ones being taken advantage of by this bigger organization because they had money and they had lawyers and they had all this stuff. But we said, you know what? For the sake of the gospel, we'll relent. We'd rather be defrauded than go to court with a brother. That makes sense. So uh, that was something that happened in the church. And Paul said, I say this to your shame that you guys would go brother against brother into the courts. The bottom line is this. Our body, our clothes, our security, our life is not our own. We've been bought with a price. Uh, in, the next, in the next chapter, Jesus is going to tell them, listen, don't worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear, because your heavenly Father knows what you need before you even ask it. Uh, there is a lot of news today about, you know, food shortages, right? And everybody's kind of freaked out about, you know, we go to the store, get some extra cans of soup, you know, or something like that. We're not going to starve. But we shouldn't be concerned about what we're going to eat. That's what Jesus tells us. Don't worry about it. God knows what you need. He's going to take care of you. So don't worry about your security. So dignity and security, and then the next aspect that he addresses is liberty. If anybody forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Go the extra mile. That's a nice saying, isn't it? Do more than's expected of you. But here's what that meant practically to the people in Jesus' day. Israel was part of the Roman Empire, right? They were um, occupied and oppressed by the Romans. And so if a Roman soldier came up to you and said, carry my stuff, you were legally obligated to carry their stuff, their gear, for at least one mile. You were legally obligated to do that. So it could have been their pack, it could have been their weapons, but if they laid it at your feet, you had to carry it at least one mile. And Jesus says, you know what? Go ahead and carry it two miles. How humiliating would it have been to carry the weapons of your oppressor? And Jesus says, you know those people that you hate, which you're not supposed to because it's the same as murder? Go ahead and do more than the law requires. We usually use this phrase in the context of work, right? You're, you know, your boss asks you to do something, you know, go the extra mile, do more than's required. But I don't hate my boss, right? I don't hate my place. I don't always want to get up and go to work, but I don't hate them. Jesus is saying that person that you can't stand, that you actually, you know, abhor, do more than is expected of you, even if it means liberty is infringed upon. Now, liberty, our liberty is guaranteed in our constitution. We're born free. We fight for the rights and the liberty of others. But it isn't to be cherished at the expense of righteousness and being a good witness. That makes sense. Uh, Galatians was the very first book that we went through as a church. 
You guys remember that? The very first book we went through. So can anybody tell me what the overarching theme was of the book of Galatians? All right, Galatians 1. No. Grace versus the law. That's the overarching thing of Galatians, right? Grace versus the law. Liberty in Christ. This is what Paul had to say about our liberty. And he's talking about those people, the Judaizers, right? We talked about the Judaizers who were trying to drag the Christians back into legalism. He said, for you were called to liberty, brothers, only do not use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Basically, use your liberty that you have to serve one another. Serve your neighbor with your liberty. So who is my neighbor? The person that's right in front of you, right? That's who your neighbor is, even if it's a Roman soldier. Use your liberty to serve the other person, even if that's infringed upon. And, and really, this word means something totally different to the Christian uh, because we realize that you know, we possess no rights by nature. In our sinful nature, we forfeited all of our rights But the cool thing is, in Jesus, in Christ, we get all of our freedoms. We get all of our liberty back as his children. Okay, the last aspect of this sentence is property. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who wants to borrow from you. Even though you know you're probably not going to see that item again. We've all, who's done that? We've loaned things out and when you hand it off, you're like, I am never seeing that thing again. They are never going to give it back. He says, do not refuse that person. Possessiveness is a very strong characteristic inside of us, in human nature. Uh, We don't want to give up what's ours. You don't have to look very far from those little two-year-olds, right? Those kids. We like our stuff. Don't take it from us. But nothing really truly belongs to us. Um, As Christians, we know that nothing really belongs to us. We are simply stewarding, we're shepherding what's been given to us. Um, Our houses, our cars, our children. That's not a popular one. We like to say those kids are ours. Those kids are ours. But in reality, you're a child of God raising a child of God. That's what we are. We've been given the responsibility of parenting that son or daughter, but ultimately it belonged to the Lord. Uh, I was having lunch on Thursday with uh, a friend of mine, and we were talking about this section of scripture, and I mentioned that, you know, even our kids don't belong to us. And he said, I don't like that. I said, neither do I. <laughs> I don't like it. But we don't have um, a right to be possessive over them. We've simply been entrusted with them. That's what God's given us. Uh, Chuck Swindoll was once having a conversation with Corey Tenboom, and she said, Chuck, I've learned that we must hold everything loosely because when I hold on tightly to things, it hurts when the Lord has to pry my fingers open and take them from me. So we need to hold everything we have loosely. See, in our culture, the more you have, the more successful you appear to the world. But the rich man isn't the one who has the most, it's the one who needs the least. Those are the people that have liberty. Here's some statistics for you, okay? Storage units. I won't ask you to raise your hand. (laughs) Self-storage units. Our houses can't contain all of the stuff we have, so we go buy more garage space to house the stuff that we have. Here's a statistic that kind of blew me away. Construction spending on self-storage units facilities grew 584% from January 2015 to January 2020. That is not a typo. In five years, construction spending went up 584%. Revenue generated from storage units just this year will top $4.5 billion in the U.S. alone. 
Uh, we have a storage unit for Shine uh, for Alicia's theater company. And we store all of the junk, all the props. It's not junk. All the props in there. She's in children's church. Oh, sorry. Don't tell her I said that. We store all the stuff in there. And every year, the price goes up. For what? They're not adding on to anything. All right, I'm not going to talk about that. <clears throat> but, like, are you going to go move all your stuff for, like, $8? One of these days I'm going to. I'm gonna <laughs> we're going to get all the shine people together. We're going to move it. Ah, <sighs> We don't have room for all of our stuff. <laughs> so we go get more stuff. I'm letting it go. All right. Cool off with a drink of water. <laughs> Malcolm Forbes, Malcolm Forbes is an American entrepreneur, and he was the publisher of Forbes magazine. You probably heard of Forbes magazine. It's a business magazine about successful people. And in 1984, he was taking a motorcycle tour through Egypt, and they went and saw the tomb of King Tut. And so when he saw all that had been in there, you know, everything that had gone into that and how we remember King Tut, when they went back to the hotel, he said to a friend of his, he said, do you think people will remember me after I'm gone? And people do remember Malcolm Forbes. They remember him as the man who coined the phrase, he who dies with the most toys wins. He's the one that coined that phrase. That's the reason why he dedicated his life to it. Um, He collected dozens of motorcycles. He paid over a million dollars for one of those Fabergé eggs. I mean, this guy owned castles and, you know, hot air balloons, all kinds of stuff that he doesn't have access to anymore because he's gone. It's just going to move on to somebody else. Jesus gave us superior words of wisdom when he said, what good will it be if a person inherits the whole world, if he gains the whole world, but loses his soul? Worldly wisdom says, he who dies with the most toys wins. There's no room for personal selfishness in the kingdom. Uh, And we can only live this way, by the way, if we have died to ourselves. If we've died to ourselves, we can live this way. But if we're fighting for our rights, our personal rights, and collecting more stuff, then that's uh, that's a good example that ourself is still on the throne of our hearts, not the Lord. And we can't live for ourselves and the Lord at the same time. It just can't happen. There's no room for selfishness. In Genesis 13, uh, Abraham is traveling with his nephew Lot. And because Abraham has been blessed, then both of their herds, you know, had grown quite large. And one day a report came back that Abraham's herdsmen and Lot's herdsmen were fighting because they were fighting over the same area where they were grazing their flocks. And so Abraham took Lot up to this hill and then overlooked the whole valley all the way around. And he said, look, this isn't good. We're family. And if our herdsmen keep fighting, then you and I are going to start fighting. So what we need to do is just split up. Uh, Love you, but you got to go. And so he said, I took him up there. Look all around. If you go one way, I will go the other. And so he said, take a look. And he gave his nephew Lot first choice, which is ridiculous. Lot didn't have any rights. Abraham was God's man. He's the one that was chosen, and yet he defaults to the one that had less rights than he did. And he says, go ahead and choose. And Lot says, don't mind if I do. And he steps up, and he said, I'll take that, over, that area over there. That place is lush, and it's green, and it's perfect for grazing. And Abraham says, okay, I'll go the other way. Uh, but Lot made a tactical error. He wanted to choose the side that you know, looked good for business, but it was bad place for raising a family because the, the spot that he chose was right next to the city of Sodom. He wanted to grow his business. He wanted more stuff. He wanted to be successful, but it came at a cost with his family living in a city of sin. So people are going to attack our dignity. They're going to attack our security and our liberty and our property. And those rights are to be placed on the altar 
of obedience if that's what Jesus requires from us. Okay, since this next section ties in so nicely with retaliation, I just wanted to go ahead and do it, and we'll finish out the rest of the chapter. Does anybody have any questions before I jump into the second half? No? Okay. Starting in verse 43, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and send rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than the others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. So don't retaliate. In fact, love your enemies. Uh, And loving your neighbor has always been God's standard of human relations. Always loving each other. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that it's okay to hate another person. Um, And again, here Jesus said that you have heard that it was said. You know, the Pharisees of that day, the rabbis, were teaching, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. They were doing what a lot of people do in our day and age, and that's perverting the scriptures to suit their own preferences. Um, It wasn't that they didn't know the scriptures, they just weren't fully teaching it and they weren't fully doing it. Uh, There are two ways that the Pharisees perverted the scriptures. Uh, The first way they did it was by omission, basically just by skipping over parts of it or not teaching parts of it that they didn't like, parts that didn't, you know, suit their lifestyle. And that's what's going on in our culture today. Uh, People don't like God's standards. They don't fit their opinions the way that they view life, and so they simply skip over those or leave them out um, because they say that those aren't relevant anymore. That was for another time. We live in different times. That part of the Bible isn't relevant anymore, and that's why we go verse by verse because we don't get to skip over things that we don't like or that make us uncomfortable. Um, that's why we've talked about lust and divorce just in the last couple of weeks. Um, it's not you know easy to teach on, but that's what God says, and so we talk about it. We don't leave it out. And in this instance, what they were doing is they were leaving out these verses about being kind to your enemies. Actually, here's how much God cares about not hating our enemies. There's this strange verse in Exodus uh, 23. It says, If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall surely bring it back to him again. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying under its burden, you would refrain from helping it. You shall surely help him with it. Now, that's a weird verse, but that's how much God cares about loving our enemies, that if you see this donkey neighbor of yours and his ox has wandered away, you're actually supposed to go get it and take it back to him. Now, that's not what most of us would do. You know, we would probably laugh and say, that's a shame. (laughs) Couldn't happen to a better person, you know? That's what we probably would do. The other way that they were perverting the scriptures was by addition. So first by omission, by leaving stuff out, and the second was by adding things to it, by saying, hate your enemy. You know, at the end of the book, at the end of Revelation that John is writing, it says that whoever reads this book will be blessed. But whoever adds to this book, the Lord will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And whoever takes away from this book, he will be taken his portion away in the tree of life. So if we add to it, we're going to be cursed. If we take away from it, we're going to be cursed. We're not supposed to be do that, but that's exactly what they were doing. And this should be very sobering for um, those of us that teach the Bible, right? Not to add things to it, not to take things from it. Uh, James actually tells the church, he says, not many of you should become teachers (laughs) because teachers are going to be judged to a higher standard, a more stricter standard. 
the Pharisees were teaching that you could hate your enemy, and this came from the decree from God that when they went into the promised land, he said, you're to completely wipe everybody out. You're supposed to kill everybody that's in the land of Canaan, get rid of them. And a lot of people that read that, they have a hard time reading that. And they are tough parts to read. Uh, They're tough for me to read too. Um, But the people who lived in Canaan were the worst of the worst. All you have to do is read a little bit about the people that were living in Canaan at the time and what they were doing, and you realize that they were slowly killing themselves is what they were doing. And so God, in his mercy, said, we're just going to have to put them out of their misery because they're slowly killing themselves anyway. But the Jewish leaders extended this to all Gentiles everywhere else in the world, and they were growing in their hatred of other people, so much so that the Romans accused them of actually hating mankind itself. That's how much they hated Gentiles. I've said this before, but the, you know, the Jewish men had a prayer that they would pray. This, Thank you, God, that you did not make me a woman or a slave or a Gentile. Great people, the way they were praying there. So the world actually has accused Christians of being hateful. From time to time, and you know we're supposed to be known for our love for one for another, and we've actually been accused from time to time of hating sinners. That's why somebody coined the phrase, hate the sin, but love the sinner, right? And we are supposed to love the sinner, but we're all supposed to give them the truth so that they will repent and turn from that sin. That's what we're supposed to do. Um, loving someone and leaving in their sin, leaving them in their sin is neither just nor kind. It's not loving. Uh, We don't love them for what they are. We love them for who they are. And who they are is a sinner in need of mercy and grace and forgiveness, just the same way you and I are. Again, this teaching to love your enemies is probably one of the most difficult things that we read in the Bible that we have to do, that the Lord requires of us, because it goes against our nature. But the question of love is not who to love, but how to love. Not who to love, but how to love most helpfully. Uh, Love is not an emotional feeling. It's an action. Love is an action. So you can actually love somebody without liking them. There's some people that you may not like, but we can still love them with our actions. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13 is often called the love chapter, and in it, Paul outlines exactly what love is. He says, love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. We're to love our enemies and pray for the people that persecute us. How in the world are we supposed to love our enemies? Well, we start off by prayer. Start off by praying for our enemies. It doesn't happen naturally, which is the reason why it has to be supernatural to love our enemies. Uh, And it should be noted in our jobs should be noted in our families, in our places of influence. People should be able to look at us and the way that we love other people and say, that's not natural. There's only one way to account for it, and that guy says he's a Christian, and that must be the reason why he can love people so well, even when they're not being loving to him. Paul tells us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we were enemies of the cross, Jesus said, I'm going to go die for Alan, for Nathan, right, for Jeff. While they are an enemy of mine, I'm going to die for them. That's the example that we have for us. The great purpose of salvation is for us to become more like our Heavenly Father. That's the purpose of salvation. So basically, what David's deal was, was people that were offending or lashing out, profaning the name of God. So he hated their actions, the people that were profaning, not the people that were offending him, right? The people that were bringing reproach upon God. So when he wrote those things, that was kind of his intention. That was what he was going after were people that were, um, 
you know, profaning and attacking and bringing reproach on the Lord. That makes sense. As opposed to people who were bringing reproach on him. He did ask God for God to take revenge on his enemies, right? That's what it says. Leave room for God's wrath because he's the one that judges rightly. Um, So that was kind of a good differentiation when I looked that up for sure. How do we love people in the government? (laughs) Yeah, that's a tough one. We talked about, you know, uh, a couple weeks ago. Uh, Oh, yeah, that's right. You were sick. You weren't here. Okay, yeah, get the tape. Um, No. So, yeah, we're called to love people in the context of our personal relationships and pray for them, pray for our enemies. Uh, A lot of times the people in the government feel like enemies, right, especially on the other side of the aisle. And we're to pray for them, pray that God would get a hold of their mind, get a hold of their hearts. Um, you know, whether or not we feel like we're taken advantage of uh, financially or as far as justice is concerned around us, you know, we can fight for justice, um, you know, legally, but not against other people personally. Like I said, in the Old Testament, all of those examples where it says eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth are in the context of a civil justice system. Um, nobody was encouraged to take the law into their own hands and apply it personally. So, you know, yes, from time to time we suffer under injustice from our government. Um, and uh, that's just something that we kind of have to, you know, that's kind of turning the other cheek, so to speak, even for him to be taken advantage of and just give it to the Lord and let him judge rightly. Let him take, you know, vengeance on those people that do wrong. Uh, I mean, that's like I said, uh, there aren't sufficient deterrents. Uh, I was listening the other day to a podcast and they said, if you're caught with an assault weapon in New York, you're going to be back out on the streets that afternoon. They just, they don't, they take it away from you, but they don't necessarily incarcerate you. That's not justice, right? But our, our society has become so corrupt that in most cases, there's not even some place to put them. Um, so yeah, that's a difficult one. And I was reading, how do we, how does this stack up against the government when they tell us that we can't meet, right? When they shut down churches and things like that. I mean, this was a huge issue, right? In California with John MacArthur's church. And I was seeing their response and, you know, we are to obey the government when it comes to wrongdoing. However, the government is not the head of the church. Jesus is head of the church and we obey Jesus over the state. You know, when uh, Peter, I think it was Peter and John, uh, were preaching the gospel and they were beaten and thrown in prison and told not to preach anymore, they said, well, you have to judge whether it's right to obey you or to obey God. And so in those instances, you know what? God trumps the government, so we do what he says as long as, you know, we're not hurting anybody. So in terms of meeting, like he was, they didn't shut down their church. I think they shut down for two weeks, and then they were back open again uh, and faced a lot of stuff, a lot of lawsuits, uh, which they won. So, yeah, we can be encouraged that we follow God's law first and then man's law as long as it doesn't violate God's law. It's a hard thing to, to rectify that God has put these people in place, right? That he has allowed them uh, to, you know, be people of authority. And when I read through the Old Testament and I see examples of God using evil pagan nations to punish, you know, the people of Israel, that's kind of one of the things that I take away from it too. It's like, yeah, we have, you know, bad people in authority in our government and maybe God's using them as a form of chastisement, of punishment for our country and the way that we have lived and the way that we've allowed evil to thrive. And that's a hard thing to reconcile, but we are, you know, to come under their authority as long as it doesn't go against scripture and his word. Um, because you know, scripture says that as well, that he places people in authority. Yeah. Again, the reason why we let him take vengeance because he does it justly. He does it righteously. Yeah, we definitely resist everything that, that uh, Satan inspires. Uh, we protect the innocent, you know, we fight for, for those that are uh, being taken advantage of for sure. Yep. Absolutely. 
Yeah, and a big part of it too is just being led by the Spirit. You know, uh, how do you reconcile that with uh, persecution and people fleeing? right? And leaving persecution. They weren't necessarily staying. They were moving to other cities. And that was part of God's plan for the gospel to spread. You know, people left Jerusalem and they went from city to city all across, you know, Europe, all across Asia Minor. And that's how the gospel spread. So if you are being persecuted, we're supposed to, you know, bear up under, under that persecution. But if, you know, we were walking by the spirit and the spirit says, you know what, you need to get out of here. Then we take our families and we leave and we protect them. So uh, again, it's a matter of being led by the spirit. Um, in some instances it is, you know, heaping coals on the head of people. They're going to have egg on their face and hopefully convicted um, because we live differently than the world does. Yeah. So the great purpose of salvation is to become like our heavenly father. Uh, Jesus says to be perfect or complete, just like our heavenly father is perfect or complete. Uh, so loving the unlovable, that doesn't make us sons of God, but it certainly is evidence that we have Jesus inside of us and that we are his children. Um, we don't really need to produce evidence of our enemy's guilt, but we do need to provide evidence that Jesus is living inside of us, that we are children of God in the way that we love them. Okay, four ways that we can love our enemies practically. We're almost done. Uh, first of all, don't live in your hurts. Uh, people sometimes will uh, offend us time and time again, but we can't bank those hurts. We can't just pack those away. We need to walk in forgiveness time and time again. Um, Peter was living in his hurts when he said, Lord, how often should we forgive people? Should we forgive them like seven times? You know, and Jesus's reply made it clear 70 times seven, that if we are not forgiving somebody right away, then we are living in our hurts. We need to deal with each hurt through grace and forgiveness, even when that other person fails to recognize or apologize for the hurts that they have done to us. So don't live in your hurt. Secondly, don't reply in anger. Uh, Proverbs 15.1 reminds us that a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. So if you want a situation to escalate, just start firing back with your words. That'll make things escalate pretty quickly. Um, but if you want to surprise your enemy, if you want to reflect the character of your heavenly father, then, uh, say something kind to them. So it's going to be very hard for somebody to be hostile towards you. If you insist on being nice and saying nice things, that's going to take them by surprise. Pray for those who hurt you. Uh, Jesus said in this part, you know, those who persecute you, you need to pray for them. Um, and this is what he did himself. We follow the example of Jesus and you're going to find it very hard to be hateful and mean to somebody that you've been praying for. I guarantee it. If you have a real problem with somebody, start praying for them. And uh, over time, you're going you're gonna to come to the knowledge that uh, I don't necessarily hate that person. I don't like them, but I can still love them. Yeah. And then number four, turn your enemy into a friend. Uh, Solomon said, when a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Uh, and we see this in the life of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, he was such a great example to us. But uh, when the Civil War ended, a group of angry Southerners got an audience with Abraham Lincoln, and they wanted to air out their grievances. They had some complaints. And so they came in very hostile, but his gentle and friendly manner overcame their hostility. And by the time they left, they had a new respect for this president who used to be their enemy. And there was a northern congressman who insisted to Lincoln, listen, you need to destroy, not befriend these guys, the Southerners. And Abraham Lincoln uh, smiled and said, am I not destroying my enemies when I make them my friends? Am I not destroying my enemies when I make them my friends? That's a pretty wise response. So people may attack our dignity. They may attack our security, our liberty, our, you know, possessions. 
but again, we place those things in God's hands. We lay them on the altar of obedience, even if we've been violated for his sake, for him to judge rightly. Amen? And then we need to love our enemies. That, again, that has to be one of the hardest things in all the scripture to love people that time and time again hurt us, but that's how we prove that we're sons and daughters of God. Amen?